We are going to be taking our time with this text for the next few weeks. Um, as many people have so many questions regarding the topic of marriage that is introduced in our text. And you know, as we, as you know, may know what we do, we, we just go straight through the scriptures covering up, co- covering whatever it is that we come across, shying away from any topic. Uh, not shying away from any topic, I should say, um, no matter how controversial it might be. And we're going to take our time with this one, because not because the Bible isn't clear, but because there's just a lot for us to process in this text. Uh, you know, the more a person or culture is confused, the longer it takes to pick up the pieces, if you will, and process it all. You know, it's like what happens when you drop a glass cup in your kitchen, like I did yesterday. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes you're lucky and it just breaks into two pieces and you just pick up the pieces and, you know, you throw it in the trash and you're on going about your day. But other times it just, it shatters into a billion pieces (laughs) and it becomes like grains of sand all over your kitchen, like happened to me yesterday. (laughs) And, you know, an hour goes by and a bottle of a leave later and you're finally on to the next thing. And, you know, that's closer, that latter example, to what happened with our culture's view of marriage. You know, in the 1950s, I could, I could do a sermon on all 12 of the verses in front of us and maybe do verses 13 through 15 as well in one big sermon. And still, you know, maybe even end early. But in 2023, this might be a three-part text. But before you guys complain, you know, one pastor that I respect spent six hours unpacking these same 12 verses. So I'm having mercy on you guys. But we ought to be aware there is something, there is a satanic agenda to take all the things that God has designed, that God has made clear and ordained and made beautiful and confuse them, and alter them, and change them into something completely different. You know, if you were to sit down and list all the institutions that God has made, including marriage, the government, and the church, you'll see they're all under attack when when you look at the state of our world today. And, you know, there will be a time and a place to cover the other two. In fact, we began this year talking about the role of the institution of the church. Um, We'll come around to the others, but today we're going to focus on marriage. You know, the world and our culture have constantly changing views on what marriage is and is not. You know, in the 1960s and 70s, some of you might even remember, what were people saying back then about marriage? They're saying, oh, what do we need marriage for, man? It's just like a piece of paper, brah. What do I need that for? <laughs> Fast forward to the 2000s, some people were marching in the streets for the right to give homosexual people that same piece of paper that you were disregarding later. Interesting, isn't it, how things change? And then today... Marriage is in a state of mockery in what it's become in our culture today. I mean, I read one 
strange report of a woman who married herself just a couple of months ago. Can, can, can you imagine that? And to my horror, you know, I went back to confirm, like, okay, maybe I read that on a satire site by accident, and I'm remembering it wrong. Let me go back and check. It turns out multiple people have done this, much to my shock. Can you believe it? And I can't help but to wonder, you know, what's that lady going to do if she changes her mind? If she wants to settle down, does she have to divorce from herself? What? And, and, and as much as I rightfully jab at that, because that is silliness. I mean, come on. This is the natural outworking of self-love, self-exaltation, and let's call it for what it is, self-worship. You're worshiping yourself when you do things like that. When you take and remove God from the culture, these are the strange things that happen in its place. You know, G.K. Chesterton said it best. He said, some people fear that once people stop believing in God, they will start believing in nothing. Alas, it is much worse. Once people abandon believing in God, they will start believing in anything. And that's what I see today. All around when I look into this world, I see people ready to believe literally anything that is thrown at them except what the scriptures say. Which brings me to a crucial point that I want to go to this morning. You know, some of you might disagree with some of the things I might say. In today's text especially, and maybe in the coming weeks as we dive deeper into these themes. Um, we're going to hit a lot of the heavier stuff today, but... If you do disagree or I do offend anybody, I have just one question that I want to ask in advance. Did I explain the text correctly? That is my one question. As we're talking about the scriptures, am I explaining what it says? Or did I accidentally say the Bible says, but it doesn't actually say that? That is my question. Because that is the only thing that really matters. You know, the, bi the, the culture has changed its mind endless times about marriage and sexuality, but the Bible has remained steadfast. You know, we don't go through and revise what the text actually says every couple of years. And it's never wrong when it speaks to an issue. So if I'm interpreting the text correctly, and you are offended, who's your beef with? I'll give you a hint, it's not me. You can take it up with him. So with that in mind, let's actually stop giving disclaimers for our text and actually jump into what it says. Let's see how far we can get beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, Stop there for a second. Jesus has now concluded upon entering chapter 19 from chapter 18. He just concluded his fourth major discourse in the gospel according to Matthew. Fourth out of five. The next one's coming up in uh, chapter 24. And the remainder of this chapter expounds upon the themes that Jesus introduced in chapter 18 as he's discoursing about community. 
What is his church going to look like? What does his assembly look like uh, just opposed to uh, the world around them? And he comes into the region of Perea, which is the name of the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And its context is about to become important as we actually jump into the text a little deeper in verse 3. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now notice it says they were testing him. This was not a genuine inquiry. This was a test. You know, in this region of Perea, King Herod had what we would maybe call today a summer house in this region. Now, some of you might remember, King Herod was the one who put John the Baptist to death for criticizing his marriage, which he said was illegitimate when he, when he married his brother's wife. So what they're trying to do here is they're trying to get Jesus to say the same thing John the Baptist did so they can do the same thing to Jesus. This is an assa- nothing short of an assassination attempt. We ought not be aware of what's really going on here. This is an attempt to destroy Jesus. And fortunately, across all four Gospels, did you know Jesus never once answers a question? It looks like he does, but he doesn't. He always answers a questioner. He notes the difference. No question exists in a vacuum. Every question has an agenda from the person who's asking it. Now, some are genuine. Some people are really asking questions and want to know more about what Jesus is saying. And he's completely open and transparent with them. But then when it comes to these Pharisees, he gets to what's really going on. And the way he answers is brilliant, but we're going to come back to that in a second. Um, Before we go there, there actually was a lot of controversy about marriage back then in first century Judaism. Uh, Some of you guys thought that I was kidding last week when I said that uh, if if your wife burnt your toast in the morning, you could be divorced by lunchtime. I'm not making that up. That was actually what Rabbi Hillel taught you could do. He said that uh, if, you could, if, you, if your wife spoiled a dish, you could divorce her. Some of you ladies are looking really insecure right now. <laughs> but fortunately, Jesus corrects them. Don't worry about it. You guys are fine. But no, that, and funny enough, that was the most popular interpretation at the time. Another rabbi said, well, if you found a more fair spouse, if you found a prettier lady you think you can get to marry you, you could divorce her and remarry. That's what they said. Now, there were others that would eventually agree with what Jesus said, but these were the popular things rabbis were teaching at that time. And the more you understand about our fallen nature, the more you understand why that would be so popular, it shouldn't surprise us that the most popular view on this subject was the one that freed man up to sin the most and indulge in their passions the most. You see, in our fallen state, we are perpetually drawn to sin like moth to a flame. And, and, and think about it. When Israel was in the wilderness, Moses wasn't up on the mountain long before the golden calf incident took place. Some of you know that narrative. 
where they refashioned a God in Moses' absence, in the absence of constantly revealed truth, they refashioned God into an image that they could control and use as an excuse to indulge in all kinds of horrendous sin. It's the same today when we look at our culture. We shouldn't be surprised that the most popular belief on any subject is the one that casts off moral restraints and allows people to indulge in their sins. We see it all the time in our culture. Sadly, it's even true of many churches. It breaks my heart that you know, the most, some of the most popular churches in America don't even bother to talk about sin. And instead, they, they talk about how you can be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And that's the main point of their sermons. And that's what their church exists for, to give you this gospel of prosperity. Other churches take it in a different direction. And they make it all about politics or social justice. And that's the main focus of their messages. That's what they preach on. That's what they celebrate. Good grief. That's what they sing about sometimes in their hymnals. It's laughable, but it comes from the same vein. Not, it's, a, it's for one, a departure of the gospel, but it also comes from a heart that says, you know, don't tell me what I actually need to hear. Don't tell me that. No, just tell me what feels good. Tell me what affirms me. Tell me what a good job I'm doing helping my community. Just tell me all of these nice things and just let me enjoy my sin quietly while, without challenging it. Sadly, that is way too popular, but I must digress that for now. Jesus, however, manages to dodge this trap that the Pharisees were setting for them as we pick up with Jesus' beautiful, very important answer in verse 4, where he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting from Genesis chapter 1 there. Jesus wonderfully rebukes these guys, these supposed scholars that the Pharisees were, by asking them, haven't you even read the first chapter of the Bible? Again, these guys are supposedly scholars and saying, didn't you even read the first chapter of the first book before coming to your conclusions? Jesus brilliantly avoids all this controversy by simply establishing my view of Scripture is God's view of Scripture, which if it sounds redundant, it kind of is. (laughs) I mean, yes, Jesus is God. He's the author of Scripture, but the Pharisees obviously didn't know that or at least reject that in their hearts at the time. Now, we must pause here on these verses, verses 4 and 5, because these are verses that every Christian needs to know in 2023 for three important reasons. The first reason is because Jesus here is citing the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the foundations for all the rest of Scripture, probably the most attacked book of Scripture, and he cites it as authoritative. 
as important, as relevant. He, he hangs his whole argument on the idea of a historical Adam and Eve whom God joined together in the first marriage. <laughs> One of these days I really need to get around to do its own sermon of just Jesus' view of Scripture. I'd love to do that. But please note, uh, until we get, dive into that more deeply, note how he views the most controversial part of the most controversial book of the Bible as authoritative, literal, and historical. That's important. We'll have to unpack that more at another time. The second reason this verse is so important in 2023 is because Jesus has declared that God has made them from the beginning male and female. Now, generations prior and pastors prior to me would look at me and be like, John, why on earth would that be controversial? Again, reasons is important for this year. You know, Jesus affirms that God has created two perfect genders, male and female, and nothing else. That is what God has made. And the fact that God has made us male and female is the most empirically verifiable thing about us. We have unique anatomy. We have unique bone structures. You can dig up my casket 100, 200, 500 years from now, and archaeologists will be able to determine if I was the man or the woman. They could tell just by looking at my bone structure. And furthermore, every single one of your individual 37 trillion cells... 37 trillion of them have a unique chromosome structure that uniquely makes you male or female. It is the most scientifically ingrained, verifiable thing about you. Clear as day. So, and, and, and that is true whether you feel like it or not. It is how you are made. It is how God has made you. And he has made no mistakes. Now, have we maybe been too strict over what particular gender roles are over the generations? Have we maybe overemphasized, you know, it's unwomanly to wear pants or jeans or whatever? There's a place to have that conversation if we maybe defined roles a little bit more more strictly than we needed to, at least as our culture. But the kind of purposeful confusion we see today is nothing short of sin and rebelling against whom God has made us. It is purposeful confusing what God has ordained of himself. And the third reason why this verse is so important for 2023, because nobody's walked out on me yet, I'm going to try one more time. It's that God took the male and the female. And this verse says, God joined them together in marriage and nothing else. God joined these two together. It's, there is a prevailing lie in our culture, even amongst Christians, that, oh, Jesus never addressed the issue of homosexuality. People say that. Christians say that. Pastors say that. But they're wrong. 
You see, here Jesus is citing Genesis chapter 1, affirming Jesus talking about God's design for marriage and who constitutes a marriage. And he brings them back to where God says, this is marriage, where he takes one man and one woman and joins them together for life. And, And because it's, and I just want to let everyone know that God loves adulterers. I love adulterers. I even have personal friends who happen to be adulterers. So I don't want to hear anybody saying that I am somehow bashing adulterers in this sermon. He's got a point, doesn't he? Isn't that interesting? Because we've heard it used with another sin in there, haven't we? Perhaps some of you have heard. You know, I could stand up here and do a full sermon on adultery this morning, and nobody would accuse me of hating adulterers. (laughs) They would hear it and rightly conclude the same thing that you would, that the Bible, that Jesus calls those who commit adultery to admit, confess, and repent of their sin of adultery. That's And that would be the end of it. Name any other sin Anger, violence, drunkenness, stealing, coveting. Nobody would accuse me of hating any of those people if I were to go there. How strange is it that this one particular sin of homosexuality, somehow people label someone as hateful for just simply calling a sin a sin. You see, we face a false dichotomy, a false choice between two. Uh, when having to choose between hate and affirmation. It's a false choice. Pastor Alistair Begg recently said this in a sermon, and because his words were perfect, I'm just just gonna steal his words directly. He said, homosexual people are either hated or affirmed. Those are the only two options they give. The Christian actually does neither. We do not hate, nor do we affirm. We cannot hate because of God's word. And we cannot affirm because of God's word. We are unprepared to rewrite the Bible in order to accommodate a society that needs the Bible and needs the Jesus that is the focus of the Bible. Give me the rest of the year, and I couldn't form a better concise statement like that. That was perfect. Uh, We cannot hate because of what the scriptures say, but we also can't affirm because of what what the scriptures say. And we certainly cannot amend the scripture because the scripture is not ours to amend. It's God who designed these institutions, and it's up to him to define at his will. And this world needs the gospel contained in the scriptures ever so badly, doesn't it? I mean, everyone in this world needs Jesus. We need the radical forgiveness and grace that we were just talking about last week. Uh, when we were considering this incalculable debt that there was no way we could possibly pay and the incredible grace that Jesus has offered us. We all need that. 
Now, some people say that they were born feeling like they were the opposite sex or having proclivities towards the opposite sex. And, you know, there's a place to argue the worthiness of that claim. But how much more pertinent for such a person does does Jesus say to such people, you must be born again? doesn't matter if you're born that way or not. I was born with my own proclivities to sin, and so were you. We are all called to be born again, to become the new creation in Christ Jesus that we are called to be. And yes, we all, we all have sins, and we're, today we're talking about some sins that look quite different than the ones that I personally struggle with, but that doesn't mean I don't struggle with sins. And their sins are, have no more disqualified them from heaven than I'm disqualified from heaven by my own works, my own sins. I am no more or less redeemable and neither are they. As the blood of Christ is sufficient to atone for all sins. In fact, that was the point of our first reading this morning. Now, I wish I had time to really go in and unpack that verse because it is so important. We just don't have time today. But in that massive list of sins that we read in our first reading from 1 Corinthians 6, perhaps maybe you saw one of your sins in there, something you struggled with, or maybe not. But we all struggle with something. And it says so beautifully, and such were some of you. As Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he knows, he probably has names and faces in mind as he's writing down these sins. People who are particularly, uh, who, who, who came him out of some of these lifestyles. Perhaps that's why it says male homosexuals. But he says, but now they are a new creation. As he would later write in that same book. And that is our hope today, that you are not defined by your sins. You are not defined by what you used to be. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have been, your very identity has changed from a sinner when God looks at you to a saint. That is wonderful news that we all need to hear and embrace this morning. That without exception, all who believe and repent of their sins, turning to Christ, can be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. This is wonderful news. And the craziest part out of everything I've said today is that Homosexuality and LGBTQ issues have nothing to do with the text that we were just reading this morning in Matthew 19. We absolutely have to go there because it's 2023. These issues are absolutely pertinent and are relevant absolutely to the text that we just read. But in AD 33, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus is is speaking these words, The issue of the day, the order of the day, was divorce and remarriage. That was the issue that was being addressed here. And next week we'll begin to unpack uh, really what they were focusing on and the grievous sins of that day. Unpacking the fact that God's plan for marriage is not just between one man and one woman. 
But there's a very forgotten fact of that, that our generation, that our world today needs to be reminded of as well. That God's plan for marriage, God's original design, included one, two more very important words. That marriage was between one man and one woman for life. I look forward to unpacking that next week. Assume you guys don't all walk out on me next week. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Amen.